Well, good morning. As uh, those of you that are regulars here probably noticed, I'm not the senior pastor here of Crosspoint Church. Uh, I put down my guitar this week. Josh is on vacation, and so you got me, the second string guy. And uh, so hopefully, uh, hopefully nobody's going to sneak out here. But um, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a background on, on me as I'm kind of introducing this. So we'll get into the Bible in just a minute. Uh, but just uh, to give you a little bit of a background about where we live. You know, Rachel and I live in Peoria, and we're right in the middle of Peoria. And actually, fairly close to our house, there's this, the Walmart that's off a of university. And when that was built, there was a big thing in the paper about it. This is years ago. Uh, th- when that was built, but there was a thing in the paper about it that, that that was the geographic center of Peoria, and that's why Walmart chose that. I think that was the first Walmart they built in this region, and that was the center of Peoria when that was built. And it, you know, it's probably shifted now because of Grand Prairie and the way that the city has grown and all that. But we're close to that, so we're right in the middle of Peoria. But it wasn't that way uh, when our house was built. You know, we have a neighbor that lives next to us that she, was, she and her husband bought the house brand new, moved in there when they got married in uh, 53 or 54, lived there throughout the entire lifetime of raising their kids, sending their kids off and all this, and she still lives there. Her husband passed away just a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, so she has this whole perspective of how this neighborhood has developed. And when you talk to her about it, she, she'll tell me about it because Forest Hill is the, street, is the main road that our road comes up to. And, uh, and when you get up to Forest Hill, she said that, when it was built, that was the edge of town. Everything past that was fields, dirt roads, there was nothing. It was Forest Hill, and that was the edge of town. And so our street, ours is a little cul-de-sac, and she said it was this new little subdivision that everybody was excited about. And so they moved into this new little subdivision on the outside of town in the suburbs, uh, which is where we are now. And she said it was this, this idyllic kind of scene, because... Uh, everybody knew one another in this neighborhood. It was a, it was a much more open type of a, of a society at that time. You know, this is back in the mid to early 50s. And, um, and so everybody knew each other. And so these guys that lived there would take their, their great big Buicks and they would park them kind of like this across the end of the road. And, uh, and so nobody could drive down this street. And since it was a cul-de-sac, then everybody would grab their picnic tables, pull them out into the street, and they'd line up all these picnic tables in the street. And the kids would be riding their bikes, and the dads would have the grills, and their wives would be making the dessert trays. And it was literally just like this big, long banquet feast in the middle of the street where everybody knew everybody's name. And, I mean, it's just as idyllic as you can imagine it sounding, Right? But, I mean, we still live there now, and it's, you know, we love our house. We love living in this neighborhood, but it's nowhere near that. I mean, that's, that's something that you read about in, in fairy tale books in our culture, right? Like, I mean, I don't know of any, I mean, does anybody have a neighborhood that has banquet feasts in the street? I don't. I mean, I don't even think they do that in Morton. I mean, so, <laughs> but uh, it's still a good neighborhood, but, but we just don't know each other. There's nothing against Morton, but, uh, but you know, I mean, they're, you know. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, I think gradually, as, as te- especially as technology has advanced, there are these things that we used to do that used to require community. You know, a lot of the things that we wanted to do necessitated community. And so if we wanted to hear the news, this is, I mean, just think 100 years ago, 150 years ago, which is not very long in the, in the grand scheme of things, even as, as, as much as the 1900s, if you wanted news, 
you had to go to the town square or go to the place where the news was posted and everybody kind of congregated on this spot and they would read through the news or they would read through a, a, a local bulletin to see what was happening or what the local events were. And there was this kind of community around it. Or if you wanted music and the idea of music in your home, I mean, I've got my phone in my pocket. I've got my whole catalog of music in my pocket that I could just listen to any time. And that's, I mean, that's crazy talk because it's only... You know, even, even 20 years ago, Walkmans were just getting big, you know? And so you think about 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, I, the idea that there wasn't this piped-in Muzak station coming in every single store that you visit anywhere in the country. I mean, whether it's a gas station, a truck stop, or, or a fine dining restaurant, the idea that there was silence, I mean, that's, that's really crazy, you know? I mean, you just can't even comprehend what does it sound like to not hear all of that. Uh, but that's the way that it was all throughout time up until really relatively recently. And, that, and up until then, if you wanted to hear music, you couldn't just turn on the radio or, or just put on your headphones, but you had to go to a concert hall and there was somebody performing this music and everybody would come together to hear this. Or, or if you had a piano in your home, then somebody would play it. And there was different involvement of different people that would come together. And it wasn't just this isolated thing, but it was this community thing. Whether or not people wanted it to be a community thing, it was necessitated by the culture and by the technology of the day. And so as technology has grown, it's not like somebody just kind of sat down and said, you know what, this has got to stop. We're just going to thwart this thing and drive it into the ground. I, you know, it's just that step by step, the technology has kind of taken away that reliance on other people and made us a little bit more self-sufficient to where now, I mean, our culture today is just so far removed from that that we just think, you know what, you do your thing, that is your business. I mean, your neighbor has a trashed up house, and you just think, hey, you know, uh, as long as you're not hurting my property value, then that's, whatever you do over there is fine. And, uh, but it can have tragic consequences, right? I mean, I was reading about, uh, I was reading again about the story of J.C. Lee Duggard. Some of you might remember her from 2007 when the story became really popular. But she spent 11 years captive in a man and wife's backyard, when she was on her way to school, they grabbed her off of the street, and it was 11 years later, in the same community, basically, where she lived, they kept her in this kind of makeshift uh, shed, basically, in the backyard. And there were all these weeds around it and lots of big bushes, and there was this shed and a tent, and I mean, it, it looked really out of place for the neighborhood. And the guy was a registered sex offender, and the people around him knew this, and the reporters asked them, they said, why didn't you just, I mean, didn't it occur to you that something was wrong? I mean, when you saw all of that, and they said, yeah, you know, it really just wasn't our business what he was doing back there. And hopefully it doesn't end tragically. You know, oftentimes it doesn't. And even that story has a happy ending because she was reunited with her family. The people that did this were brought to justice. And that is a terrible story. But, but that just highlights what it is in our society that it's so politically un incorrect to be intolerant of anything. Even something that seems really wrong to say something against that is just seen as intolerant. And we're like, well, that's just... You know, that, that's not really how we do it, but you know what? If it makes you happy, then, hey, you know, who am I to tell you what's right or wrong? And so we just kind of let people do that. 
And, uh, and we feel like the temptation is to just think, well, yeah, it is our culture. I mean, American culture, it's in the pits because of Hollywood. And, you know, but, and that may be partially true. But I think more than that, it's, it's a human nature problem, right? We have this sin thing welling up within us all the time. And so regardless of what culture it is, you see this over and over again where people start off and they have an opportunity to do good, and then they just kind of sidestep it and say, well, that's, you know, that's not really my problem, and I don't really want to get my hands dirty with that. And so then they just kind of, they don't do anything wrong per se, they just don't get that involved with it, and they just kind of sidestep it. And you can see that over and over again throughout history. And so as we look in the Word today, we are going to see that uh, repeated again. So last week, if you were here, Paul Cohn, one of our elders, taught on the first half of the Great Commandment, which is love God. If you didn't hear it, you can go on our website, and you can check that one out as well. Uh, but he talked about the first half, which is love God, love the Lord your God. And he taught from Matthew, and this week we are going to teach from Luke. I told, uh, I told Paul... As I was telling him, I, as we were getting ready, uh, as he was getting ready for his sermon, I said, okay, I've got it down. I'm going to be consistent with you. I'm going to preach in, in Matthew. Matthew 22, that's where he's preaching. Okay, you know, the, the, the great commandment is, is uh, quoted three times in the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be consistent. We're going to do Matthew. And then I was talking to Josh, and I, it was a couple of days later, and I just, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to do Mark. I just, I feel like I'm going to do Mark. And, uh, you know, that's, I just feel like that's where God's leading me. And then I, I went home from work a couple of days ago, and I was talking to Rachel, and I'm like, i got to preach from Luke. That's it. So, so we're going to be in Luke today. I'm probably going to stay there. Um, so we're going to be in Luke. So you can open that to Luke 10, and we're going to be in chapter, or excuse me, chapter 10 and verse 25. And I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. This is a very familiar passage, so... Uh, fight the urge to zone out on this because it's so familiar. But um, here, starting in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, how many people here, you can show of hands, how many people here know the golden rule? Right? This isn't a trick question. It's, right, it's uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, so we're all on the same page here. I would guess that if you went across the street to, like, the antique mall here, you could probably ask anybody, I mean, even kids, and they could probably quote that to you because... Regardless of the culture, whether you're in a church or whether you're in a, a secular workplace or something, just everybody just kind of knows that. And they, they aren't really sure where it came from. Some people think that it just came from the Bible or it's a Christian thing, but, but they just kind of know what that is. And so it's like, well, that's, that's good. It's this moral thing, right? And it actually, it, it is in the Bible. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 7, he said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But I would suggest that this isn't a specifically Christian teaching. It's not anti-Christian, so don't get me wrong. It's not like Jesus was teaching something wrong. But when you take just this thing, which is what our society tends to do, and you try to take away the stuff about the Bible and take away the stuff about loving God and loving people, and you say, well, I'm going to do unto others as I would have them do unto me, then it becomes something really uh, different, 
way off base from what, from what God had really intended, and I think what Jesus was trying to get at during the Sermon on the Mount. But and, and you see it through culture. I mean, lots of different cultures that were far away from Christianity used the same sort of thing. You know, if you look it up, they, they don't call it the golden rule. That's a pretty recent term, but they call it the, the ethic of reciprocity. So if you're in college, write that down. You'll get an A on your paper this fall. Ethic of reciprocity. 500 years before Jesus walked the earth, Confucius was the Chinese philosopher, and he said, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. 200 years after that, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, said, do not do to others what what would anger you if done to you by others. So you see these secular writers that don't have anything to do with Christianity that are coming to these sorts of conclusions or, or using this sort of teaching. And archaeologists have even found stone tablets from Babylon dating to 1700 or 1800 B.C. that still talk about this reciprocal action about actions and reactions and the way you treat people. So it's this kind of methodology that's been permeated through cultures and through societies really throughout time. I mean, we're talking 4,000 years in the past that this was still commonly taught in cultures. And like I said, it is in the Bible, but I don't think that this is quite what Jesus was getting at was just this. Because I think the problem is that uh, we can follow this rule and we really don't need God to help us follow it. You know, there, it doesn't mention God specifically in it, and it is a moral thing for us to do, but we don't have to have God to treat others as we would be treated ourselves. I know a lot of people who absolutely uh, have rejected faith, but, you know, they treat other people the way they want to be treated because, and why is it? Well, I mean, it's all about me, right? I mean, at, at its heart, at its root, you get it, and you say, well, you know, how do I feel about that? Well, you know, that may be good for you, but this is, how, this is how I would want to be treated, or this is what I would want. And so it's all about, like, well, what do I want? What do I want? What do I think? What do I, what do I approve of? Or what would please me? And you just, me and me and me and me and me. And, you, and that's the problem. When you get away from the great commandment, which is loving God and loving people, then even when you're doing other things for other people, it always becomes about you, and you kind of become your own God, Because God's original plan for humanity was really about community, right? He created mankind to be in communion with himself. When God exists in heaven or in in earth, he exists in community. There's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God exists eternally in community. He, He set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they had children. And there's this community inherent in creation. So there's the father and the mother and the children, and there's this community. And then there's the church, and you have the leaders of the church, and you have Jesus as the chief shepherd, and then you have the flock of the church, and you see this community. And it all reflects back on the way God instituted creation. And that's because in Genesis it says we were created in God's image, So the very nature of God is embedded into our DNA. And so we thrive when we're in community, initially with God, and then that flows from that into community with other people. And so that's why this is so revolutionary when Jesus put these two teachings together, because if you separate them, if you you take off the part about loving God, then like we just said, it, it really becomes about you because you're, you're trying to love people, but it's really, you're the one that's benefiting from it because you're trying to see how they're going to treat you and you just kind of become your own God. 
But then if you take away the other side and you just say, well, I'm going to love God. I don't care about you people. I'm going to love God. And then you just have this great relationship and, oh, I'm reading my Bible every day. I don't care what you people do. Go do your thing. I'm loving God. And then you just have this kind of dead orthodoxy because it doesn't affect anybody else around you. It's just your own little personal thing that doesn't, doesn't do any good to anybody. And so these are inseparable commands. And uh, the problem is because in, in Israelite history, they knew both of these, right? Jesus was a very creative teacher, but he didn't just make it up on the spot. Most of his teachings that you can see all are based on specific scriptures. And so this one was the combination of two very well-known laws. You know, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses wrote out the Old Testament, uh, or when he wrote out the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, when he wrote that, he put right in there, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he had, he had it written right into the law. And this was a prayer or a saying that the Jews would say morning and night. They called it the Shema. And they would say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that, that was just daily, daily, daily they're saying this thing. But then to add to it this other part, which came from Leviticus, Leviticus 19, uh, is all these laws about taking care of the poor and treating your brothers justfully and, and with justice and not having uh, improper favoritism or or treating people that are foreigners worse than you would be treated if you were a national citizen. And so it's all these things. And it finalizes, you know, and it kind of repeats a lot of the, the last five commandments of the Ten Commandments, which are all about dealing with other people and not murdering, not stealing, not coveting, treat, you know, not lying and all this. And then it caps it all off with, love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. And so you see these two commandments that they knew uh, but they had never really put those together as the ultimate thing about how, how do we love God and how does that play into how we love other people. And the problem was that even if they're following it, they're following these laws, and laws never really have this effect of making us generous people, right? Like we could go to Target, and if we buy something at Target, you pay $20 for it, and you don't just whip out an extra 20 and say, you know what, I just love your company. Here's more. I, you know, I mean... The, the, that's like the law. You know, that is the satisfaction of the law is whatever that bill is. I mean, Rachel and I went out to dinner with some friends last weekend, and, uh, and we went to the restaurant, and it was the four of us, and then we had some kids with us. We had our two boys, and they had four kids with them. And I just, in my head, I'm thinking, well, there's four people eating, and then there's the kids that are just playing on their parents' iPhones. And, uh, but when they brought the check to us, it had the gratuity added because we had a party of like eight or nine people. And I thought, oh, well, that's odd. Okay, whatever. And, it, and so it had 18% on there. And I don't say this to be bragging, but I used to work in a, a restaurant, and that's not the bragging part. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I know how it is. You know, when you're a server and you're trying to wait tables, um, there are a lot of things that happen that aren't your fault. And so typically when Rachel and I go out, it's mostly because I'm bad at math, but I'll just put down 20% as the tip. Uh, unless service is rough, then we'll do 15%. You know, but, um, but 20% usually because I can do the math in my head and that writes it down easily. Um, but they brought that out and it said 18%, and that was less than I had intended to tip them because it was decent service. Um, and, uh, but I, I looked at that and I said, oh, it's already on there. And it said a little line on there that said additional tip, and I just went, nope, and wrote down the, <laughs> wrote down the total because that's easy for me to do the math. And I signed my name and I 
closed the folder and I set it back and I said, okay. And it wasn't until, you know, a week, and a half, or a week later when I'm studying this and I'm like, oh, see, that is what the law does to us. It doesn't make us generous. We think, well, we've already satisfied the requirements of the law. Why do I need to do anything else beyond that, right? And so you see this, uh, if you turn your Bibles over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to be in verse 16. Uh, you can keep your finger in, in Luke 10, now that I've already told you to turn it. Matthew 19, verse 16, and read through verse 22. And this is, uh, as Jesus is teaching, he's kind of walking uh, and, and teaching as he's, as he's walking, traveling. Uh, it says, uh, going through Galilee. And it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which really, this is, this is a summary of that Leviticus passage I just talked about. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the tendency is, with this passage especially, uh, because this is another one that's repeated multiple times in the different Gospels, is to think, well, you know, if we want to be Christians, we've got to be poor. And so we've got to get rid of everything. We've got to get rid of the nice house. We've got to move to the slums. And, you know, we've got to get rid of our car and walk. And that's, that's not it. That's not what he's getting at here. Because think about it logically. If, if you get rid of everything that you have, you're still not saved, Right? I mean, he's t- what Jesus is doing, uh, John Calvin was a, a pastor in the 1600s, and he wrote about this passage, and he said, he said, Jesus has this great ability to see these festering wounds in our spirit that we can't perceive ourselves with our own eyes. And when he realizes that we don't see it, he presses on it, not to cause us pain, but to bring attention to that wound. And so, so this man basically is boasting to him. He's, he just comes up to him, and he says, hey... I don't know if you checked my resume, but I'd be a pretty good disciple because, I mean, I've pretty much done everything right. And Jesus looks at him and he says, oh, okay, well, what have you done? And he goes, well, everything. I mean, pretty much the whole thing. It's, it's right here. I'm the whole package. And Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, well, how about that idolatry of your possessions? And the guy is just struck to his heart and walks away sorrowful. Not because it's so awful that he has this stuff, but because the value that he's placed on all of these things is so much greater than the value that he really sees in being righteous and in following Christ. And so it's like, well, if I have to choose you or this, and he made his decision. He walked away sorrowful. And then Jesus goes into it talking talking about how hard it is for a rich person to enter heaven, not because they're rich, because you see holy and righteous people throughout the Bible who are rich, but because these things are so easily entangling us and getting in the way of what's really important. Because really, I mean, isn't everything that stands between us and God, and it's worthless, right? It's garbage. But this young man, you know, he couldn't quite see that, and he saw that wound and and. And he turned away and he said, well, I can't, I just, I can't be healed of that. I just, I just have to go and just be with my stuff. 
So let's go back to the passage of the Good Samaritan as you're turning back to Luke 10. But I mean, that's the, that's the point, isn't it, right? Like we, with, with legalism, he's following the law and he's fulfilling these statutes of the law, but he, he thinks that he's righteous and he thinks that he's holy, but the truth is that he's not actually getting it. Like he's following the letter of the law, but he's entirely missing the spirit of the law. And that's the way that we act. When we have these laws, we, we follow the letter of the law. We don't go into the spirit of the law. And our, oh, good grief, our culture is a picture of that, right? With all of our laws and all of the ways that the courts and everything changed and shaped culture and the way we do things, we follow the letter of the law. And that's how we justify things that we do. It's not based on generosity and love. It's on legalism. And so you see this again. If you turn back to Matthew 10, or to Luke 10, sorry, um, Continuing or finishing up this conversation between Jesus and this lawyer. In 29, but he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you have to just kind of step back and look at the perspective of this lawyer, right? Um, depending on which, which passage of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that you're reading this, this story in, uh, in the other ones, uh, you know, it could be the same thing. It could be a same story, uh, the same instance, or it could be that it happened multiple times and that this was a teaching, the great commandment that, that Jesus taught over and over. Um, you know, so it's hard to say exactly because the timeline doesn't fit in right. But I mean, in, in the other passages, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus basically gets into an argument with the Sadducees, which was this big religious group, and he silences them. They cannot answer and argue against him about eternal life and that. And so then the Pharisees come up to him, and in that same vein, they take one of their scribes, who's the guy that was responsible for writing out all of the scrolls, and I mean, he would know the scriptures from front to back. And so this guy, who's the lawyer, who's kind of the know-it-all, stands up to challenge Jesus. And it says even in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So he's in the middle of, Jesus is in the middle of this kind of, informal talk with his disciples who are just coming back from ministering out in the different villages and they're just having this informal chat and celebration about how good God is being to them and in the midst of this kind of random talk this guy stands up to challenge him which is a it's a, a sign of a very formal approach to someone that you stand up and say well I've got a question for you and it's deceptively simple when he says what shall I do to inherit eternal life because if Jesus would have answered this carelessly, I mean, they would, have, they would have just thrown that in his face and said, well, look at that. Oh, see what he said about this? I mean, he's trying to subvert the law of Moses. He's trying to ruin our culture and throw us out into the pagan cultures around us. I mean, you know, but he didn't. He answered that really wisely, turned it back on the guy's head, and, and just kind of silenced the guy. And so then it says, so from that kind of perspective, that's when it says, but he desiring to justify himself, like, oh, okay, okay, you got that one, but how about this? Uh, who is my neighbor? And so then Jesus answers and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So the, the interesting thing on that that we have to realize is that the name, it, it, there's a lot of these things that when we take it at face value, we can misinterpret it because he said, who is my neighbor? But he kind of meant the opposite, right? Like, you know, you kind of know who your neighbors are, but what he was trying to assert was that there was such a thing as a non-neighbor. So he's saying, well, who isn't my neighbor? Because I've already been a neighbor to these people, so I'm pretty much, you know, it's the same as this rich young ruler, like, well, I mean, I've already done all of these things. And so it's the same kind of attitude that we, we hear the letter of the law and we totally miss the spirit of the law. And uh, the, the typical progression of something like this, uh, the Jews would have heard Jesus saying this parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, it, would have, it would have gone something like, okay, well, here's the hierarchy. You have the priest that comes by first. You know, and this is all, it, it wasn't just made up. I mean, all the details of the story are, are true. There's this road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and it's about 17 miles long, and it has some twists and turns, lots of caves lining it. It goes through this valley, and it's such a violent area that they actually, in, in the time of Joshua, when Joshua conquered Jericho, they, talk, they call it the Valley of Blood. And so it's this rough place to go through. Most people go around and come back up from the south into Jericho, but he was going straight through from Jerusalem down to Jericho through this valley. And, uh, and so it's, it's very easy to believe that some guy would go through there and be beaten senseless and be left half dead on the side of the road. And so the, the Jews are following, they're tracking with this like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, he got what he had coming to him going there. And, uh, and so then the priest comes along, and the priest is kind of, the top of the city, right? I mean, he's, in their, in their culture, religion and the church and the state were all combined together in the synagogue and in the temple and in the Jewish temple. And so he's in Jerusalem. He's serving in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. If he's coming from Jerusalem, that means he was probably finishing his time of service for a couple of weeks at the temple. Uh, he was very wealthy, and so he would have been coming away from this, and he would have come across this man, and it probably came to his mind that, well, you know, if I touch him, he looks dead, and if I go within six feet of him, I'm ceremonially unclean, and so if I touch him, if I help him, then if he is dead, it's too late anyway, and if he's, you know, if he, and, and that means I'm going to have to go back to Jerusalem to be purified, and that's going to take another week. I'm going to have to buy a heifer to sacrifice so I can be purified, and it's going to take me another week and a half before I can get home, and my wife has got dinner ready tomorrow, and so, you know, it's like, and so he just says, yeah, I'm just going to keep going, and he walks around him, or he rides around him, and he keeps on going. And then the next guy comes. And so they're seeing this progression because you start at the top, you have the priest, and then the next you have the Levite. Uh, the Levite. And uh, the Levite was kind of like a junior priest because the priest is of the tribe of Levi as well, but he's also a son of Aaron, which means that he was a priest. They were offering sacrifices and doing this. And the Levite was kind of like the layperson in the church or in the synagogue. And so he was never going to be a priest, but he was the assistant to the priest. And they got paid a little bit, but not anywhere near what the, what the priest would have been paid. And so he's, he's, he's really like your average church worker guy. And he comes by, and, uh, and it's possible that 
depending on how long it had been, he may even have seen the priest walk around him and he says, well, I mean, he walked around him. I don't have the money to take care of this guy. And if he, he walked around him, I mean, if he can't pay for it, then I mean, I, certainly, I don't make what he makes. I mean, so I just, I, I have to just keep on going because there's no way that I could do this. And not to mention the fact that there are all these caves. The, the people that robbed him, they could be watching us right now. And if I stop to help them, they're going to come and take advantage of me and leave me right next to him. So I'm just going to keep on walking and I'm just going to go on. And so the Jewish mindset at the time would have been like, okay, this is a story about the, how bad the hierarchy is of our system. He wants to level the playing field, that the people that are just the regular Jewish worshipers are just as good as the priest and all this because he's trying to overthrow the government. This is probably the mindset that a lot of theologians think that the Jewish people would have been having as they're hearing this story. But then he throws this big wrench into it and he says, but a Samaritan was coming along this path. And the Samaritans, if you know anything about Jewish history and, and, and that the Samaritans were just bitterly hated by the Jews. And it, it's, it's strange to, to read the history of it, but you know, back in 2 Kings uh, in the Old Testament, you see when Israel was conquered by Assyria, he carried off the children of Israel to Assyria into prison. And then he, the king of Assyria brought in all these foreigners, these Babylonians, these Assyrians and this, to basically work the field and maintain this land while he had all these prisoners. So he could still be the king over everything that he had conquered. And so there were some of the people of Israel, the poorest of the poor, that were left there. And they kind of intermarried and they all kind of lived in this area of Samaria. And they are, you know, throughout history, developed into kind of this own people group called Samaritans. And the Jews absolutely rejected them as children of Israel, even though there was, you know, connections there, obviously. But because there was differences and, and they had a period of, of pagan worship, you know, and all this, for a very variety of reasons, you just see this tension growing and growing and growing throughout the church history, or throughout the history of Israel. And so by the time of Jesus, it was so bad that they would actually pray, God, give your grace to me, give your grace to our family, withhold grace from the Samaritans, send all of them to hell. And they hated them so intensely. They said that if you eat with a Samaritan, if you have lunch with a Samaritan, it is as bad as eating pork, which means you'd be ceremonially unclean and cut off from your people just for having lunch with this guy. And so the last person that anybody would expect to help a Jew would be a Samaritan. I mean, you see this tension. It's still, it's still in the Middle East. You know, you see like Palestine and the West Bank and Israel, and you see the different tensions of the people groups that are there. And that's the kind of aggression that they experienced then. And so you have this different, uh, you have this, this guy that comes in, and Jesus throws this, this wrench into the, into the parable. And everybody's kind of like, hold on. Hold on. And so he says, okay, the Samaritan came along. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, and you can see even in, even in the lawyer's response, you know, at the end there, he says, Jesus said, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the Samaritans, they weren't Gentiles, right? Gentiles are the people that are non-Jewish, that are totally other nations. Like we are all Gentiles, um, or most of us, uh, unless you're descended of Israel, literally, then we're all Gentiles, right? So these are, Samaritans are not. They're part of Jewish culture in that they worship God, and they observe these different ceremonially uh, observed sacrifices and these sorts of things. They just are separate from the Jews and didn't like each other. 
And so he's got these same thoughts about uncleanness and purity and that going through his head, but he still, he gets down and he helps the guy and he, and he in, in, intentional about it. He takes him on his animal. He pays, some people have, have estimated that the, that the cost of the two coins that he gave to the innkeeper was about two or three weeks worth of, of room and board. And he showed his face to the innkeeper. He didn't just leave him on the doorstep with a note saying, here's a couple bucks, take care of him. He showed his face to the innkeeper and said, I will repay you for his expenses if you pay anything more when I come back. And the Jew doesn't see this at all. You know, the the lawyer, when he sees this, Jesus says, well, who became the neighbor to this man? And he says, he doesn't say, well, you know, the Samaritan was a good guy. He just says, no. I mean, you can almost hear the disdain in his voice where that one, the, the one that did good, right? I know what you mean by it. We don't have to say it. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, you know, and Jesus says, you go and be like this man that you hate. Because it's not about who is a neighbor or who is in close proximity to you, but it's about who became a neighbor, right? In First John uh, chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. In First John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, it illustrates this really well. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So think about that first verse, that it's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. <clears throat> I have this, uh, this friend of mine who's a pastor in town, and he has a house relatively close to ours, so it's kind of in the middle of Peoria. And, uh, and he was telling me how a couple of years ago they were, they were intending to sell their place. They didn't necessarily want to try to move to a different neighborhood, uh, but, but they had a family member that was going to be coming to live with them. They have a two-story house. They wanted to go to one level, make it a little bit easier. And so they put their house on the market. Six months go by. They didn't have a single inquiry on their house. And they, it's a you know, fairly nice house, but not a single call on their house. Six months go by. He said, man, if I was my realtor, I think I would just like, Get some homeless guy and just say, here's five bucks. Will you just walk through the house and say, hey, we had a showing. Things are moving forward. You know, but nothing. So after six months, they finally, they said they're praying. They're just getting frustrated by this and they don't know what to do. And he said they just felt like God was speaking to him and just said, look, I put you in this place to become a neighbor to the people around you. And you've totally wasted the opportunity. You have all of these people, all these families around you that you have an opportunity to meet and to get to know and to minister to, and you've done nothing with it. You don't even know their names. So why am I going to take you and uproot you from this spot, put you over here, and give you a new set of neighbors that you can mistreat over here? And they got the message. They said they took their house off of the market, and, uh, and they sat down, the guy and his wife, and, and they wrote down, they said, okay, and they made a list of eight families in the neighborhood, and they're being intentional about it, and they said, we're going we're gonna to minister to these eight families. So these, these people have kids, we're going to invite them to VBS this summer, you know, this family likes baseball, we're going to go to a Chiefs game with them and just hang out, be friends, be a good neighbor to the people around them. We serve a God that takes the initiative. He calls us to love him 
And through that love, we are to love other people. You know, we talk about church unity a lot, but that's not really the end goal, right? That's a side effect of the great commandment. Because when we love God, we're focusing our love on him, and we're drawing close to him, and we're adoring him. And that love fills us to where we can go and and spend that love on other people, and we can show love to our neighbors, and we can become neighbors to other people. And they're not drawn toward us because it's not about us. They're drawn toward God because they see the glory of God that's working through our lives. And so they're drawn toward God. And so all of us are drawn together. And it makes this community where we're knit together. But it's, and it makes us unified because we're unified through the cross. But it's not, it's not for unity's sake. And it's not just that we get along. But it's, it's so that we can be closer to God and we can draw into a true community that way. And that's my prayer for our church. I mean, we've gone through a lot. You know, we've, we've changed pastors in the last year. We've had some people that have moved away. Some people have passed away. New people have come in. Maybe you haven't been here that long. I mean, you know, I think our church is on the right path. We have a lot of people that they'll come to our, our newcomers' lunches when we have those, and they'll say, you know, some will say, well, the music's good, or well, the teaching's good. And a lot of people, the consistent thing that they say is, you know, I really just felt welcomed here. Like, people talked to me, and they said hi, and, and there's a place for my kids to go, and they met people, and, and it's, it's about this community, because this is kind of what knits a church together, because we have differences, but, but through the cross, we're brought onto the same page. And so my prayer is just that we can have our eyes open to see that this love that God puts into our hearts and this joy that he fills us up with is not just for our own sake, but it's for everybody else, right? And that's how our church is going to continue to grow together, whether it's numerically or or maturity-wise, but our church needs the love of God and to experience that love through loving our neighbors. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have given us the ability to worship, the ability to pray to you. Lord, you've given us uh, not just the physical ability, but you've placed us in a time, in a culture, in a place that allows us to worship you publicly. We can stand up with your Bible in our hands, reading your scriptures, praising you without fear of retribution. And God, I pray that you would give us encouragement that as we go out, we would take advantage of this great freedom that we have, that we would see our neighbors, our siblings, our parents, our coworkers, that we need to become a neighbor to. God, that you would give us the strength, the courage to talk to them. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to set our hearts on you, that our love for you would grow deeper and stronger and that people would see your light shining through us as a result. So we just thank you again. We offer up this morning in your name. Amen.